Let's get into the message today. We're in a new sermon series. We're in week two, and last week we launched as Jesus started to help us think again about what it looks like to live in this world a life surrendered to him under his control. And this morning we're going to be actually exploring part two of what we talked about last week. Part two of what Jesus has to say about relationships gone south, about how we're to live when there's relational rift in our midst. Last week, Jesus talked uh, specifically about unresolved anger and bitterness and even hatred and how God longs for those things not to simmer in our souls, how he longs for us to move towards restoration. And today, Jesus is going to take us a step farther. Today, Jesus is going to talk to us specifically about how we as his followers are to respond when there is sin in the life of someone we love. Specifically when that sin comes into our community, into our lives, and starts to impact us. And so Matthew chapter 18, if you have a Bible, pull it out, open to Matthew 18. If you want to use one from the pew rack in front of you, we're going to be on page 799 this morning. As Jesus offers us, I think one of the most significant, and yet for us in our day and age, challenging passages on what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be the church. Here's what he says. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And and that's where we'll begin today. I'll pause right there. We're going to start with that last sentence. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Because this is the heart of Jesus' teaching What Jesus will say today, the conventional wisdom he's offering, was something very well known in the first century. This was standard relationship procedure, actually. And yet Jesus offers the same thing, but from a different place, with a different heart. He says, act this way, but do it from a different perspective. And and this passage, my friends, is a call to confrontation with the goal of restoration. It's a call to confrontation with the goal of restoration. It's a very direct teaching about what we should do when someone close to us who follows Jesus starts to veer from the path and live in a way that is outside of God's plan. And Jesus says, when a brother or sister, in other words, someone in someone else in your, in your Christian community, in your little circle of Jesus following, sins, and sin is sort of a big word. We'll have our own ideas of what that means. But it simply means when they do something, when they say something, when they start to live in a way that is outside of God's plan for their lives, he says, when that starts to happen, you go and you do this really fun thing of pointing it out to them. You go and tell them with the goal that they will listen to you, that they will change their ways, that they will be restored, that their life will be right again, and your relationship with them right as well. Now, some translations include the words against you. Maybe some of you have another translation that has those words in there. If your brother or sister sins against you. These words were not included in the original manuscripts. The oldest copies of the Gospel of Matthew we have do not have those words. However, they are on some level implied. 
I want to be really clear here that Jesus is not asking you to go out into the world, into the church, into the life of Christians and become the sin police. Instead, what he's really saying is, if there is sin that impacts you or is part of your community, if that sin is happening, then it is your job. He is asking you to go and confront it. Because restoration is about the process of making things right relationally. And one of the biblical images for restoration, uh, Pastor Paul actually pointed this out to me a few weeks back, and I, I checked it Checked it out, it's true. One of the biblical images for restoration is a bone that's been broken and needs to be reset. Or a joint that's become separated and it needs to get put back into place. And, and this is a really powerful image because it teaches us a few really important things about this process of restoration, of confronting and restoration that we're talking about today. Namely, primarily it teaches us and shows us real vividly that this stuff is hard, that it's sensitive, that this is not an easy or painless thing to do. When we get involved with each other's lives and with each other's sin, it can be very difficult. I remember real clearly um, when I dislocated my ankle playing basketball um, in my early 20s. Some of you were here for a sermon I preached about this, and it's sort of a graphic example, but stay with me. There's a good point. Um, I dislocated my ankle, and my foot was just hanging off my leg, completely dislocated, like completely out. Um, A horrific moment, and I remember that there were so many people who honestly just were trying to help, who just wanted to stabilize my foot, and yet I did not want anyone going anywhere near it. Why? Because it hurt and it was sensitive and when people touched it, it hurt worse. It was a very sensitive thing. Friends, so is confronting someone about their sin. In fact, this can be such a difficult and painful thing that many of you in this room will choose not to do it. Many of you will sidestep, you'll find loopholes, make excuses. You will decide not. You will decide today. You will decide tomorrow. You will decide throughout your life not to follow the very clear teaching of Jesus in this area simply because it's just too hard. Actually, I'll I'll say this. There's not much confusing about what Jesus says today. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to do. But friends, the truth is this, when we don't do this, when we choose to avoid and ignore sin in our brothers and sisters, people walk around not with just broken arms, but broken lives. People end up not with dislocated ankles, but dislocated relationships. And Jesus, talking to us today, says, not so with you. Not with my kids. This is not what I long for, for my church. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Now, I want you to really take note of that phrase, just between the two of you, because in the Greek, it actually means just between the two of you. (laughs) And here's what Jesus understands. He knows us pretty well, and he knows that it will be my temptation and yours to do anything 
anything but this. To do anything but simply talk to someone directly about their life not being in line with how God wants them to live. Oh, we'll talk to others about it. That's easy. That's sometimes enjoyable or fun. We'll stew on it. We may even seek counsel or pray about another sin. But to simply say to someone, hey, I need to have a hard conversation with you about something in your life, something you said, something you did, something that hurt me, that would be way too presumptuous. You see, one thing I think we need to get real clear on as we tackle this text today is this simple question. Is Jesus against conflict? In this passage, is Jesus saying, because sometimes people interpret Matthew 18 this way, you are the church and amongst you there should be no conflict, so work really hard to make sure there's nothing between any of you. Is that what he's saying? I don't think he is. In fact, I think he's saying the opposite. He's saying, you are the church, and one of the things you are going to have to deal with as the church and deal with often is conflict. Conflict is just woven into the very nature of who you are. In fact, let me just point this out to you. Do you know where conflict thrives? Like, if you could create a Petri dish just made to produce conflict, what would that Petri dish entail? I think it would primarily uh, be about two things. First of all, it, it would be when people spend extended time together. You ever notice this? If you spend enough time with someone, there will be conflict. It's easy to meet someone, see them on and off again, interact briefly here and there, and never have a conflict. But when you're with someone continuously and often, conflict emerges. This is why vacations go south. Because you think, man, I really like this person. We're married. We see each other every night after work, sometimes a few, you know, for numbers of hours on the weekends. We seem to get along good. Let's go away together for seven or eight days solid. And by the end, you're like, you're driving me nuts. I know I pledge to love you, like, for better or worse, but I got to get out of here. This is what happens on vacation. You put a bunch of people together for an extended period of time, and it's just like a breeding ground for conflict. And so, by the way, that's just permission. If you've been on vacation, it didn't go well, like, you're not alone. So there's some freedom in there. Here's the other thing. Here's the other environment where conflict thrives. When people interact about things that really matter, that really matter, like, I have strong opinions and beliefs, convictions about this stuff. That's where there, there will be conflict. When my life is deeply invested in something, that is where I will have conflict. You see, we, we love to talk about surface-level things in our society because it's one of the ways we avoid conflict. And, and as a sports fan, I'll even say it's why we talk about sports. Because it doesn't really matter if the Blazers win today. I mean, if there was a Denver Nuggets fan here, God rest their soul, if there was, and they were cheering for the Nuggets, and they thought the Nuggets were going to win today, even if they came down after service and told me that they hoped and prayed the Nuggets would beat the Blazers today, we wouldn't have conflict. I wouldn't punch them in the face. I wouldn't even think about it. Why? Well, because I'm a pastor. I'm not allowed to. But no, because it doesn't really matter that much. It doesn't. But if we start talking about 
life and salvation and the kingdom of God and God's plan for our lives and who he wants us to be and become and the things he would have us do and not do and the people he would longs to create us to be. Like Those things matter. They're of eternal significance. And so, friends, do you know what this is, by the way? It's a definition of the church, a community where you spend a lot of time together and interact about things, the things that matter most. And so, of course, there will be conflict. There should be more conflict in this community than in any other community, and the New Testament bears evidence to that. Furthermore, I believe conflict is one of the primary tools God uses in our lives to grow us and change us and shape us into the people he wants us to be. Do you know what our mission is around here? We gather as a church community and our mission together, the thing we want to accomplish together in community is this, becoming like Jesus and making him known. And you know, I was thinking about it this week and that sounds so nice, doesn't it? Becoming like, I mean, who doesn't want to become like Jesus? I do. Let's do it, right? So serene. Except for, you must understand this, that to become like Jesus, you're going to need some work. you got a long way to go. You're going to need some things in your heart and life and mind to change. And most of that change is not going to happen without confrontation and without conflict without loving confrontation offered to you by people in your life. You see, sometimes this passage, and this passage is thought to be Jesus saying, hey church, can't we all just get along? Let's all just get along together. But I don't think that's what this passage is about. Let me tell you what I think Matthew 18 is about. This passage is about the spirit-guided process a community of believers is to follow in order to become like Jesus and have sin rooted out of their lives. You know what our problem is? We don't really want sin rooted out of our lives. We're pretty comfortable with the sin that's settled into our lives. And so we would just assume, keep it there and not become like Jesus instead of having someone come to us and point it out to us. But that's not the church. That's not what we're all about. That's not what this passage is about. If you want to become like Jesus, he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Sit down, have the hard conversation. He says, I know it's scary, I know it's uncomfortable, I know it's not fun and fuzzy and your favorite thing to do, but this is how you will grow. This is how you are going to become more the person and the community that God longs for you to be. And here's the even better news. It may not go well. In fact... There's a real good chance it won't go well. When you just do what Jesus says to do and you go to your brother or sister and from this place of concern and care for them, love for them, and point out their sin to them, there's a real good chance that they're going to blow you off, that they're going to yell at you, that they're going to accuse you of being a hypocrite. It may not go well. In fact, there's such a good chance that it may not go well that Jesus lays out a contingency plan. He says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
If they still refuse, contingency plan number two, to listen, tell it to the church. Now, you'll notice here that with each level up, the authority and the accountability increases on both sides. If you're the one being confronted with sin, if someone's coming to you and saying, there's something in your life that's not right, this is going to get increasingly more intense because it is a big deal. Some of you who this has happened to, you know about it. It's a big deal for someone to take you out to lunch and to sit down and look across the table and say, remember when you said this? Remember when you did this, say, I'm seeing some stuff in your life and it does not seem right. It does not line up with who I think God wants you to be. Friends, that is intense. That is affronting. That will evoke a response from you. This person feels strong enough to talk to me about my sin. Ooh, that's significant. This is why, friends, by the way, if ever a person from the congregation comes in to talk to me about a concern, they make an appointment, they come into the office, and we sit down, and they say, Pastor Dave, I have some concerns about something, about something you said, something you did, something you preached, then it's my commitment to take that conversation very seriously. If someone is going to go through the trouble, if they're gonna take the energy and time to come and sit and look in my face and say, there's something that you have done and I need to call you on it. There's something in your life, there's something in your preaching that seems off. I need to tell you about it. It is my commitment to take a, a very intentional posture of humility in that moment and to at least consider that this person may be right. Now, I may not end up agreeing, but I will definitely consider it with everything I have. This is opposed to the anonymous complaints written on the prayer cards and turned into the offering bags. Um, I'm just saying, not as much consideration, you know? Recycle bin. Anyway, um, how can we pray for you? I want to complain about something and not sign my name. Hmm, doesn't seem like that's what Jesus said. So you see, you understand there's an accountability for the confronter and the confrontee. You have to at least be willing to take the time and energy to take the risk of talking to someone personally. Accountability on both sides. It takes courage to communicate in this way. And then imagine how that intensity goes up when they come back and there are now a few friends with them. Hey, remember how we had this conversation before? Well, now... It didn't seem to go well. I don't think we really agreed. And, and now we all need to talk to you about this issue. A few of us are seeing this in your life. We need to talk. And then imagine if even after that, the church has to get involved and the people who speak for the entire community, the pastors and the elders, they have to start to weigh in on your life and your behaviors and, and the sin that you are involved in. Do you see how the intensity and the accountability keep mounting? But again, there's also a, a, a mounting accountability for the one bringing the concern. See, now this person who's pointing out the sin is also held in check because these other people they've brought along, they can now say, oh, oh, oh you know what, that's actually a little too far. Or, and, 
or after hearing both sides, they have a point, or maybe you don't have all the facts right. You see, there's accountability for everyone in this process, and it's something that we don't often want in conflict. What we want is to be able to say whatever we want from our perspective, and we want everyone to agree and no one to challenge us. And Jesus says, that is not how it should be done. Jesus lays out a system where both sides are held accountable. And then finally he says, and if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If the counsel and authority of the community of faith does not result in a change of behavior and heart, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That word pagan is the word ethnikos. It simply means Gentile or foreigner, someone who was outside the family. A tax collector was someone who had betrayed the Jews, one who had sold out to the Romans, was taxing their own people for the foreign oppressive government. Now, Jesus is not saying you now have full permission to hate them. Jesus showed and called his followers to show love and grace to, pa to pagans and tax collectors all the time. What he's doing here is he's offering a very strong and sobering truth that people who will not turn from their sin and be restored cannot be a trusted part of the faith community. Because the goal of engaging conflict and confronting sin is always restoration. But what Jesus is telling us in this passage is something that I think many of us need to hear. It will not always end this way. Just because you do what God asks does not mean it will go the way you want it to go or even the way he wants it to go. It will not always end end the way you hope and pray and long for it to end. Sometimes restoration won't happen. Sometimes people will dig in their heels. Sometimes there will be a lack of humility or a willingness to change. And I want to say two things about this. First, it's always heartbreaking. It is not the desired outcome and it is never the goal of confrontation. In fact, if you do engage in conflict with someone and in the end it does not go well, and you end up saying to yourself, well, good. I didn't want them around anyway. That's just an indication that your heart was not right from the very beginning. The second thing I'll say about this is the fact that it may not end well does not always mean that it was not handled well. See, here's how we think about the church. And part of this sermon is not just to think again about conflict, but it's to think again about the church and who we really are and how we're supposed to do life together, right? Because we have ideas about what it means to be in the church and to be part of the church, and yet we have to square those with Jesus' idea. And here's how we often think about the church. We often think if Jesus is really involved and if people act and handle confrontation in a godly way, then there will certainly be peace and harmony and perfect restoration in the end. We think if, if, if the church is involved, it should always turn out all nice and rosy. And again, I have to say the problem with that is, is that is not how it always turns out in the Bible. That's not even always how it turned out for Jesus. You see, think about the rich young ruler, for example. There's this young man, this wealthy young man who says, I want to follow God. I want to submit my life to God. And Jesus says, well, if you really do, if you want to come under the lordship of God, then your finances, your wealth has to be submitted as well. You have to surrender even your money. And there's this confrontation 
And the rich young ruler walks away, sad. And now can you imagine the people around going back to Jesus and going, hey, Jesus, let's talk about your conflict resolution. I mean, if you'd only handled it a little better, if you'd have been a little softer, a little kinder, if you had been so direct, I think, you know, I mean, it obviously didn't handle it well because it didn't turn out well. No, of course not. Friends, sometimes it won't end well because sometimes people aren't ready yet. Sometimes there are other factors at play, and no matter what you do or say, they aren't in a place where they can or want it to work out. So restoring someone is always the goal, but if it doesn't go that way, it does not mean you failed. Perhaps God will use your confrontation. Perhaps he'll use those words at a later date in the life of that person. It may not be a win now, but maybe it'll be a win later because God will never give up. Jesus says, sometimes you will have to break fellowship with people. Church is not always this ring around the rosy, happy community. Sometimes there's tough conversations that we have to have together. And and then we get to this sort of cryptic section where Jesus talks about how God honors this kind of a restoration process. How when we enter in restoration, into restoration and, and conflict and confrontation in this way, God honors this, even though it's tough, even though it's difficult, even though it's messy, even though it doesn't always work out the way we want it to. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now, this is probably the most misused and butchered passage in all of the scripture, right? This one has been taken out of context so many times, and it's often used to mean, hey, whenever two or three Christians get together and pray for something, God should give it to them, right? This passage, friends does not mean that. You have to read the Bible in context. This passage is not a reassurance that when attendance to the prayer meeting is low and only three people show up, God is still there. God is still there, but you know what? God would be there if you showed up alone. You do not need a friend or two in order to experience the presence of God. You may need a friend or two if there is sin in the life of a brother or sister in Christ and resolution and restoration is difficult, You may need a friend or two then, and when that happens, and when they enter in, and together you prayerfully and graciously confront someone's sin, when that happens, God says, remember, I'll be with you, I'll be a part of it, that I will bless, my authority will be given to that process. And you know, there are only two places in the scriptures where Jesus uses this bind and loose terminology. It's sort of sort of spiritual language that we're not real familiar with, and we won't get too deep into it today, but he only uses this language in two different places, and ironically, both times he's talking about the church, the community of believers gathered together to become like Jesus and make him known as a body, as a family. And here he's talking about this process where the family of God works together to confront sin and restore people. And Jesus says, when you do this, when the church works like the church should work, heaven supports you. God's power and strength and resilience is with you when you're willing to do the hard work of confronting sin together with humility and grace and a posture of restoration. 
And this idea, friends, I think will challenge our 21st century American idea of what the church is all about. Because most of us, we like church when life is good and everything's going well. We like church when the sermon makes us feel good or when they challenge us just a little bit and we can kind of come and we can go and Jesus is just sort of this add-on to our really amazing life. Most of us love church when it's like that. But then all of a sudden, if people from the church, people in your church or leaders in the church call into question your lifestyle or decisions, then all of a sudden we say stuff like, who do they think they are? Or why are they all up in my business? What right do they have to tell me how to live my life? They're sinners just like me. What a bunch of hypocrites. Friends, can I just as lovingly and honestly as I can today tell you who they think they are? They think they're your church. They think they're the community of people who are called by God to help you see and root the sin out of your life. They think they are the community of people you joined so that you might be taught and challenged and encouraged and exhorted to live a life more surrendered to Jesus. You see, to join a church and to say, hey, stay out of my business is like joining a soccer team and saying, I love soccer, but I don't want to kick a ball. And and we'd say, well, then go join the swim team, right? Because this is what we do here. It's what we're all about. In fact, I'll say that perhaps one of the main roles of the church is to be a community that meddles in your life. It's one of the main jobs of the church. This should be the most meddling group of people you know. They should be all up in your business all the time up in your face, when you are off track and not following the plan that God wants you to follow, they should be right there. Maybe not all of them, but at least a few. And if they're not, then maybe you're not really part of the church. If you don't have people doing this for you, you are missing a very key component of what it means to be a part of the church. You're missing a very key component of how you will actually grow and be transformed into the person that God wants you to become. You see, here's what I think Jesus wants for us. And I'm not talking about just us in general. I'm talking now real specifically. Here's what I think Jesus wants for us. Cedar Mill Bible Church. More conflict and confrontation, not less. More meddling and challenging, not less. More relationships so close and deep and caring and Christ-filled that we are continually being challenged to surrender more and more and more fully to him. And friends, I, I have to say, if that's not what you want, then you don't want church. You just want to attend services. And that's okay, but be honest. Because they're not the same thing. There's a difference. I also want to say here that I am not saying that churches and church leaders never make mistakes. Like, the church has the authority of God, and so you should never question them. We all know church leaders make mistakes. We all know church leaders are human. As a church leader, I can tell you from firsthand experience, church leaders are far, far, far from perfect. 
But the point isn't, if your church is perfect and if the leadership of your church is perfect, they can speak into your life. No, the point is God will use even imperfect people, even an imperfect church to form you and shape you and help you become who he wants you to be. That's the message here. This is not about I could let someone challenge me if they were perfect themselves. If that's your stance, friends, no one will ever be able to challenge you in your entire life because every single person in here on some level is a hypocrite. All of us, all of us stand on the grace of God. There's not a perfect person in this place. And so if you're not willing to let imperfect people challenge your imperfection, then you will never be challenged and you will never grow. And you'll never become who God wants you to be. Now, of course, Peter, the guy who provides more teachable moments than anyone in history, responds to this teaching that Jesus offers. And here's what he says. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And you've got to understand that, that Peter is feeling pretty generous here with his forgiveness. He's feeling really gracious because the standard number of times you would forgive someone in the Jewish culture was three. Three strikes and you're out. It's biblical, right? That's what they thought. And so Peter is sort of expecting a gold star, you know? Hey, Jesus, how many, how many times should you forgive? Because I'll do seven, you know, perfect number, all heavenly and stuff. And Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And, and what we often think Jesus is saying here is just like, keep forgiving more. Always be forgiving. Forgive forever. Not just seven times, but like endlessly forgive someone. And I think there's some truth to that, but it goes a little farther. This is powerful because this whole seven times 77 language, it's not new language. It actually comes from the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter four. In Genesis chapter four, sin has entered the world. Adam and Eve have like disobeyed God. Um, they've followed their desires and they've kind of gone against the will of God and now sin has run amok and it is starting to like pillage and ravage the human race and all of creation. It's going everywhere. And already Cain kills his brother Abel and then Cain has a son named Lamech and Lamech uh, is even worse, more sinful than his dad and he makes this statement. This is Gen Genesis 4.24. Again, sin just moving quickly. He says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now, those numbers ring a bell, don't they? And what Jesus does in this passage when he's talking to Peter is he takes this language of judgment and vengeance from the Old Testament and he applies it to forgiveness. He says, the world that we live in, the sinful, fallen, broken world, is preoccupied with judgment and vengeance. But Jesus says, not in the kingdom, not when I am Lord of your life. We must be focused on and obsessed with even grace and restoration and forgiveness. This, the way the world pursues vengeance and revenge, we should pr pursue restoration and forgiveness with just as much like, veracity as they do. Except for their veracity takes them this way and our veracity takes us this whole other way. And then, and then Jesus closes with this story. It's a long story, I won't read it, but it's the story of a servant who is indebted to a king. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. And this servant is indebted many, many, many dollars. In fact, scholars say the, like the US currency equivalent of this number figure 
um, the, the number of the, the amount of his debt is about $4.8 billion. $4.8 billion in debt. And the king says, I forgive your debt. I absorb your debt. I take on your debt. And I move into your sin and I absorb your debt and I make it so that we can be restored in relationship again. And then the servant. Now, imagine the servant. 4.8 billion in debt and it's forgiven. And he goes out and he runs into one of his servants. And this servant owes him not billions, but hundreds, hundreds of dollars. And this servant asks for mercy. And this servant who's received $4.8 billion of mercy now says to his servant, no, no way, you owe me every single penny. And then at the end of this story, Jesus says, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Friends, and, and the question is, we see where this story is told, right? It's told right on the heels of this clear instruction to move into the sin of people in our lives in order so that they might be restored back into the plan God has for their life. And then he says, like, here's how you move in. You move in with, like, this passion, not for vengeance, not to get even, but a passion for forgiveness. And then he tells the story. And what's the point? Is the point, man, I better forgive people or God will never forgive me. Because that's sometimes how we read this story. Like, we walk out of here with this renewed sense that, man, I'm going to try a lot harder to, like, confront people's sin and to do it in the right way, and to do it with a posture of grace and forgiveness, and I'm gonna really work to restoration, and I'm gonna do this stuff. I'm gonna try hard because I wanna forgive people, because if I forgive those, then God will forgive me. And I wanna say that is not what Jesus is saying here. What, what Jesus is saying here is it's sort of like fruit on a tree. By the way, this is why I think Jesus talks about fruit on a tree all the time. He talks about that, like you're, by their fruit, they will be known. He uses that fruit example throughout the Gospels. Because it's not fruit that gives a tree life. You never say, man, if a tree could only get some fruit, then it would be healthy. Right? No, it's a healthy tree that produces fruit, not fruit that produces a healthy tree. The fruit is the revelation that the tree is healthy, that there's life. And so here's what Jesus is saying in this story, in this very long story of the unmerciful servant. He's saying, the fruit of forgiveness reveals a heart that's been forgiven. Someone who's willing to move into the sin of another and confront them, step into that mess and graciously and carefully help someone move towards restoration, to do the hard work, even when it's messy and vulnerable, of doing that. Someone who's willing to do that, that reveals someone whose heart has been treated in a similar way. You see, it's the gospel that fuels our desire to move into the sin of our brothers and sisters and restore them to health. We do that, why? Because a God moved into our lives and to our sin in order that we might be restored to health. We have a God who moved in and who absorbed a great price that we might be made right again, that we might be taken off this path of sin and walking away from God and be put back on a path of walking with him. You see, friends, if, 
you have experienced the gospel, if you've truly been forgiven, if you understand the weight and magnitude of how God has forgiven you, how he's moved into the sin of your life and restored you, then all of a sudden it becomes a whole lot easier to move into the sin in the life of someone else. You see, we don't work for God's forgiveness. It's God's forgiveness that's at work in us. And friends, if you've experienced the God of the universe loving you so much that he moves into your life to reveal your sin and restore you to the person he longs for you to be, then that reality, that good news will help you become the kind of person who does that for others. And that's why every week we don't leave here saying, try harder, do your best this week, church. Pull up your bootstraps. No, we end every single Sunday at these tables where we are reminded of how God moved into our lives through the death and resurrection of his son. How he walked right into your sin and into mine and said, let's make this thing right together. And you may reject me and you may push back on me and I may have to come again and again and again, but eventually I will win you over. Friends, has the gospel changed your life? Has the gospel transformed the way you see the fallenness and brokenness of your brothers and sisters in this room? I invite you today not to come to the table with a list of conflicts or a list of people that you need to talk to. I invite you to come to the table today and just meditate on the debt that has been forgiven in your life. On how much God had to pay, how much he had to absorb so that you could be made right with him that his son had to suffer and die and bleed and be mocked and beaten so that you could have life with your heavenly father. Let that reality soak in and change you and shape you and fuel you for the life God wants you to live. So this morning I'm gonna pray and the worship team's gonna come and I invite you to one of the tables. Take the bread, take the cup and then when you're ready at your seat, you just make that declaration, God, I am one. I'm one of the ones that you have through the life of your son restored. Father, this morning as we come to this table and remember and press upon our hearts the weight of who you are and what you've done, push it deep in our souls that it would change us. Do not let this, Lord, be just a moment where we go through the motions but remind us in a deep and significant way who you are and what you've done. We invite you, God, to change us, to help us see the world differently through the lens of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.